Welcome to 900 Ackland Avenue. This is the podcast for the Ackland Avenue Church of Christ. What follows is the sermon from June 19th, 2022. Thank you and God bless.
And then on Tuesday night, and this is through, uh, through Jennifer Sternberg with Salon, we're going to be packing vaccine goodie bags. And Jennifer will speak more to this, but Salon sees a lot of the, um, the unaccompanied minors that end up in, in the United States, and they need a lot of vaccinations. Kids, you know when you go to the doctor and you've got to get one or two shots? If you ever been to the doctor, you get five, six, seven shots, and you're like, why are they doing this to me? Okay, that is a rough go of it. So we're going to pack some goodie bags so that when these kids get here and have to get tons of shots, we can give them some fun stuff, okay, to kind of cheer up their day. And so Jennifer's going to be talking about that. We're also going to have some folks that have been working with an Afghan family talk to us about their experiences. I was trying to get my good friend Carlos Baltanado, who's the minister at the Grandview Church of Christ in Oldsmore Road, probably half or more of their congregation are, are immigrants, to get him to come and speak about uh, ch churches with immigrants. He's out of town, but later in July, he's going to come on a Wednesday night and speak to us, and that's going to be great. And then there will be ice cream, just because ice cream is great. And then on Wednesday night, okay, we have our brand back, brown back here, and then this was Sabrina's idea. We're going to watch a 55-minute documentary called By Design, The Shaping of Nashville's Public Schools. And this is going to talk about the history of segregation, integration, and busing uh, in Metro Davidson County. It's a really good documentary that was put together. And then Dr. David Holmes from Lipscomb University, uh, who one of his research interests is the civil rights movement. He's going to come and talk to us about the history and we'll have some Q&A. This is going to be a great week. We hope you can come to part of that. I apologize for the long announcement. Some of the kids are like, that's a short sermon. It hasn't even started, kids. Oh my goodness. Okay, well thanks for listening to that. I'm super pumped about Mission Week and all that. We're going to be reading from Philippians 3. It's in your bulletin. Uh, and I'd, I'd like to set it up this way. I'm not good at hanging pictures or hanging things even. I hesitate to tell you this because now you won't be able to get it out of your mind, but I came to the building this week and I hung the Pentecost banner. I'm only two weeks late hanging the Pentecost banner, but I hung the Pentecost banner and uh, I could not get it level. I kept I kept playing with it because it's it's bigger than the others, so I hang it with string. It doesn't fit in the poles. I'm going into too much detail, but you have this tension when you're hanging pictures, specifically if you're hanging like four 8x10s together and you're trying to get them all even. There's, there's two extreme reactions I want to take when this happens. One reaction I'm going to take is I want to lie to myself and tell myself it's fine, even when it's not. Because <laughs> I've just done messing with it, right? Have you ever been hanging a picture with a family member or a friend and they say, is it, is it even? And you know it's not, but you're tired of messing with it. And so you say, it's fine. It's perfect. And then they come back out and look at them like, why did you tell me it was even? It's not straight, right? So there's this one tendency to just want to minimize it and say, it's fine. Lie to yourself. But the other reaction is just, I can never get this straight. We're just not going to hang pictures. I'm just going to rip it down. Okay? We're just not doing it. Okay? I bet a lot of you have done this. You get so frustrated. You just don't hang anything on that wall. You're just going to walk away. Okay? And so these two extremes, to just lie to yourself and say it's good, even when it's not, or to just quit and walk away. And I'm seeing those postures around a lot of issues all around our world today. We tell ourselves something is perfect even when it's not, or we just walk away. We minimize or we quit. 
Americans feel let down by so many institutions they once trusted in. Institutions like government, education, healthcare, trusted bedrocks like family, faith, and church. And there's a lot of disillusionment in our world, and people aren't sure how to frame their relationships with country, community, faith, family. And there's those two options people take. So some people overly romanticize, they minimize, and they defend at every turn. And they say things like, this is a great country. Always has been. How dare you suggest otherwise? My parents did the best they could under the circumstances. Why are you whining and complaining, criticizing people that aren't around now to defend themselves? The church is the body of Christ. Why would you tear it down by pointing out all of its faults? And that, my friends, that's minimization, right? But the other response is just to quit, and we probably heard these things as well. This country is the worst. If I could move to Canada, I would. Family's crazy. That's why I never go home. Christians are hypocritical and corrupt. I haven't been to church in years, and I don't miss it. My faith is even stronger now. I'm not going to church. And we recognize that. That's the walk-away response, right? That's the quick response. And I see this dynamic weekly. And I want us to remind ourselves that there's a better way. And that better way is what Jesus gives us in the gospel. And specifically, the better way is confession and renewal. Confession and renewal. And we are called to be a people that confess sin. Even our own, especially our own. But we do not give up hope and we work towards what is better. Jesus teaches us to be people of truth, not falsehood. That's something we need to continually remind ourselves. We are people of truth, not falsehood. And Jesus teaches us to name, confess, and repent of our sin. Jesus teaches us that no person is ever too far gone. We don't quit on people. We don't quit on things. We seek renewal and reform. So the verse I kept coming back to as I was thinking about this, and I've departed from the lectionary today, is Philippians 3, 10-14. Would you stand with me for the reading of this passage? This is Philippians 3, 10-14. If you want to join with me in the bold section 12-14, it's the words of Paul. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead together. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and turning towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. And the key thing I want us to think about this morning is that line, not that we have already obtained this, but we press on. Not that we've already obtained it, but we press on. This verse, this gospel truth, shows us that imperfect people admit that they're imperfect, but press on towards that which is perfect. We believe perfection will not completely come until Jesus returns someday, and he will 
return someday. But we're not just sitting here waiting, right? Every day we get up through the power of the Holy Spirit, and we seek the perfection that God brings and that God gives us. And this morning, I want to apply this to three different realms. The nation, the family, and the church. First, let's talk about the nation. As Aaron referred to at the beginning of our service, today is Juneteenth. For many of us, Juneteenth may be kind of a newer thing the last few years. Uh, and so I wanted to just speak to that just, just for a couple of moments. Uh, just in our house this morning, it kind of came up. You know, what is Juneteenth? Kind of reminding ourselves of it. On June 19, 1865, the last enslaved people were informed of their freedom in Galveston, Texas. You know, and I bet one of the reasons Aaron brought it up is he's, he's from Texas. I find that Texans seem to know more about it than others because it happened in Texas. Union General George Granger announced what was known as General Order Number 3. So all these individuals had gathered there, and he read this, this proclamation that, that you were free. Some of you may be thinking, why do they have to do that? Didn't the Emancipation Proclamation do that? Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation had freed enslaved people, going into effect January 1st, 1863. But their freedom depended on the Union Army advancing and implementing the freedom and bringing it about. Many of you know, Lee surrenders in April of 65, Yet there continued to be people that were enslaved all the way up until June 19th, two months later in Texas, and the last of the enslaved people were informed of their freedom on June 19th, 1865. The very next year, freedmen gathered to mark that first anniversary. So June 19th is always, I mean, Juneteenth has always been a thing. Uh, it may be new to some of us, but it's always been a thing. They gathered that very next year, and you know what they called it? They called it Jubilee Day which we, we recognize from Leviticus 25, right? It's a biblical concept of freedom. And it's been commemorated every year since that first year. So how does this truth in this day shape our view of the United States? And really clearly, our primary citizenship is in the kingdom of God, and yet we're called to love our neighbors as ourselves, and most of us are citizens of the United States, we all live in the United States, and so this is the context in which we're trying to love our neighbors so the nation becomes important. We're in a season of patriotic celebration. I've seen many flags around the area I live still up for Memorial Day, and they'll probably keep them up through Independence Day. Some of them probably keep them up through Labor Day, right, kind of the summer season. Um, and where does Juneteenth fit in among kind of the season, right, Memorial Day, Independence Day, and various things? Juneteenth is an acknowledgment, a confession of imperfection, the commemoration of how far we've come and how, how far we still have to go. I will tell you that I think that's been most influential for me on how to frame this was a biography of Frederick Douglass uh, that I've read over the last year, going back to it several times. Specifically, Douglass, who was Christian, a man of great faith, he did three different Independence Day speeches in his life. And the, the shape of these speeches changes over time. He does one in 1852, one in 1862, and one in 1875. Remember, Civil War is 1861 to 65. Okay. And the tone, and even how he speaks about Independence Day, changes from 52 to 62, and then from 62 to 75. 
So I'm going to read an excerpt from the speech he gives in 1852 in New York. He lived in Rochester, New York most of his life. It was the Rochester Ladies Anti-Slavery Society in Rochester, New York. And the theme of the speech is, what to the slave is the 4th of July? I'm mainly reading from the middle of the speech. He talks, it's an amazing speech, but he, he begins by complimenting the country and the founders. But then he work, goes into what the problem is. And then he ends with great hope, okay? And in his speech, he reads Psalm 137. That's why Hayden read that this morning. Um, he, because Psalm 137 is actually part of his speech. Listen to these words of Frederick Douglass. What have I, or those I represent, have to do with your national independence? Once again, it's 1852. Are the great principles of political freedom and natural justice embodied in that Declaration of Independence extended to us? Such is not the state of the case. I say it with a sad sense of the disparity between us. I am not included within the pale of glorious anniversary. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not by me. The sunlight that brought light and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. This 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice. I must mourn. What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him, more than all the other days of the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. And then later, when he gets more towards the end of the speech, allow me to say in conclusion, notwithstanding the dark picture I have this day presented of the state of the nation. I do not despair of this country. So he was, he was hopeful. There are forces in operation which must inevitably work the downfall of slavery. The arm of the Lord is not shortened. That's a biblical quote. And the doom of slavery is certain. I therefore leave off where I began with hope. While drawing encouragement from the Declaration of Independence, the great principles it contains, and the genius of American institutions, my spirit is also cheered by the obvious tendencies of the age. And he's referencing the, the abolition movement. Okay. So in 52, he says, this is your 4th of July. But when he gets to 62, and specifically 1875, the pronoun change, and now he says, this is our 4th of July. Okay. So what has happened over the years, he feels he's beginning to be included in the Independence Day celebration. A careful understanding of history, I think, must, must point out kind of some of the genius of the founding, but also some of the evil of the founding, and, and who was a part of it, who was included, and who was not included. And that's just an honest confession, right? Douglas wasn't trying to tear the nation apart, he was trying to have a live up to its better angels. Is that a Dr. Queen King quote? I'm not sure. Okay, but I've heard that phrase a lot. And that's what he was trying to, to bring about. And I believe his posture to be an excellent example. We should name evil without falling prey to cynicism. I know we are tempted by cynicism. Many people in this country are. You can name evil without becoming a cynic. We should be people of hope without hiding our head in the sand and being naive. I do not want to be naive. And I do not want to be cynical. 
I want to be a hopeful person that is honest. May we mark Juneteenth by reflecting on the ways that July 4th, 1776 didn't immediately bring freedom and justice to everyone. We should grieve that. We really should. We should celebrate the progress that has been made. We should name the hard work yet to be done. And we can do all of this without minimizing our country's sins or quitting the country and saying the country's completely horrible, always has been, and things like that. During this season, let us not be afraid to confess our country's sins, and let us not be afraid to thank God for the good that God has done through the United States. We can do better. Jesus has called us to love our neighbor. And confession and renewal is one of the ways we can love our neighbor. Second, let's talk about family. Today is Father's Day. We recently had Mother's Day, and many enjoy these days. But for others, and Hayden mentioned this in her prayer, these days can be really hard. Fractured relationships, loss, kind of what-ifs and various things. And there's several reasons I don't do Mother's Day and Father's Day sermons. One, um, at least for Mother's Day, we're still in the lectionary season. It's the season of, of Easter moving up to, to Pentecost, and it's just, it's not a religious holiday. It's, it's a Hallmark holiday, okay? Um, but I believe in the good of the family. I believe in God's design for family. I believe mothers and fathers design their sacrificial work on the example of Jesus Christ. I mean, I, I believe in all the good of that, but um, I'll just confess, I've seen overly sentimental Mother's Day and Father's sermons that did more harm than good, so that's why I don't do it. So if you get frustrated with me every Mother's Day and Father's Day, blame my past, okay? <laughs> but, um, but I want to acknowledge how wonderful family is, and yet, and yet family can be very hard. And I want to think about Paul's words, not that we've already obtained this, but we press on, and what might that mean for family? All of you know how challenging and yet how beautiful family can be. Guys, it's the number one thing I've heard from you for the last five or six years. Um, wrestling with how much you love your family, but yet how hard your family can be sometimes. And so what's, what's the wise posture? Some of you are from family systems where you could never name the elephant in the room. You never question, specifically certain sacred members of the family could never be questioned. And you always had to kind of live into this myth of the perfect family. Okay, we're an amazing family. We all drink the Kool-Aid. We have the portraits around to show it. One of the, the blessings of the tragedy of my childhood is I found myself in a blended family where it was clear to us and everyone who ever saw us that we weren't perfect. <laughs> and so God kind of got that out of my system at, a, at an early age. But I know for some of you who reach adulthood and you're like, oh, I'm starting to see my family with different eyes, and maybe we weren't the, the perfect, you know, you know, 1950s or even 1980s sitcom family or something like that. Others of us, though, are in family systems where people run and they quit showing up distance grows, and people just kind of quit on it. So, so what is the wise approach to family? I'll say this carefully. Well, I believe in the importance of boundaries. We need boundaries for people. When it comes to non-abusive scenarios, and I worded that for a very specific reason, when it comes to non-abusive scenarios, I think maintaining some type of relationship is wise. I don't think we need to quit on our families unless there's some type of abusive situation. Um, but for non-abusive scenarios, I think we should maintain some type of relationship with boundaries. Okay? I would invite you 
to consider what it would look like to confess your sins to your family. And I would tell you that the best way for you to have a healthy family is to develop an atmosphere where you can be honest and hopeful. And you're honest and hopeful is when you don't minimize stuff, but you also don't run, you don't quit on it, and you learn to confess your sins to each other. If your kids are young, start that now. One of the best things you can do as a parent is to confess your sins to, I mean, your sins against your children. Not, not stuff that they're, it's not age appropriate, okay? But like, when you sin against them is, is, is what I'm saying. And we sin against everyone because we're, we're recovering sinners, that's what we do. But one of the greatest things I think my dad ever did for me is he confessed sin to me and, and would teach me that example. And I'm not always a good father, but I hope my kids remember the times I confessed my sin to them. And I think if you can do that when you're young, as your family gets older, you always have that in place that we acknowledge when we hurt each other, we work towards it. And some of you may feel like, my family's never done that. What a beautiful time to start on Father's Day, right? To begin being transparent, not cynical, honest, and hopeful. Your family is not perfect and never will be. But don't let that reality prevent you from enjoying the family you have now. Enjoy the family you have now. None of us want to go through this world completely alone. And while we're on family, let's talk about marriage. Every time I attend a wedding, I'm both inspired and intimidated by the vows. Those of you who've been married, you ever looked at people doing these vows, and like, there's no way they're living up to that. But specifically, when they start to write their own vows, it's like, let's not get crazy. You're not living up to that. I've been married long enough to know, right? But yet, it's so beautiful and inspiring, okay? And none of us have completely lived up to our vows, but that doesn't mean we quit on our marriage. It means we confess our sins. And why marriage is difficult is because no one reveals your sin as much as your spouse. Because they know your sin better than anyone else. That's why it's hard. Because you don't like your sin, you want to hide from it, but when you look at your spouse's face and they're like, I know what you're like to live with, okay? Like, it's difficult. But, once again, just like with our children, if we can confess our sins to our spouse, nothing will improve our marriages more by confessing our sins to each other and asking for forgiveness. <clears throat> Lastly, I want to talk about our relationship with the church. We talked about the nation, the family, and now the church. And this is what's most important. The scripture teaches us that the community that we live in is important, and that our biological families, people we live with are important. But yet, the most important thing is the kingdom of God and the church is the social manifestation of the kingdom. And these are our deepest relationships. The American church is as unpopular as it's ever been in my lifetime. And that is the main thing I have thought about and worked on the last six or seven years of my life. And probably what I'll do the rest of my life. Dealing with the fact that the church is unpopular, wrestling with that, and trying to figure out the response. And there are many reasons why this is the case, but one of the largest reasons has been the prevalence of abuse scandals. I believe that is the number one reason why the church is as unpopular as it's ever been in this country. My favorite part of our worship is normally the Lord's Supper. When I look around and I see all of you, um, you know, at our metaphorical table, and I enjoy it so much because I feel surrounded by your, your love and your grace and your hospitality. And 
it's a very meaningful time. But let's go back to Douglas's speech for a second when he says, you know, this is your 4th of July, not my 4th of July. Think about someone that has been abused by the church, abused in the church, and then the church was silent. They would look around their community and say, this is your Lord's Supper, it's not my Lord's Supper. Because I'm, because I look around at you, I've been hurt by people, and then others have been complicit in silence. The person that has been abused by the church and it's been kept silent, kept, I mean, that's what they're thinking, like what Douglas thought about the 4th of July. This is your thing, it's not my thing. I don't feel included in that because I haven't been protected, I've received no confession, apology, various things. They were promised the kingdom, but they didn't experience it. They were promised heaven, and they received Recently, an independent report came out about abuse in the Southern Baptist Church. This is made the news, you know, because we're in Nashville. It's kind of a hub of Southern Baptist. My goal is not to kick the SBC while they're down, just like it was never my goal to kick the Catholic Church when they're down. My Catholic friends grieve what has happened. My Southern Baptist friends grieve what has happened. If, if the Churches of Christ were an official denomination and we had a central body, our central body would be looking into this too. We just don't have a central body, okay? But sadly, people have been abused in churches of Christ. I don't know of any abuse in this specific church, okay? Um, but of course people have been abused. I'm not, I don't want to kick other groups while they're down. And yet, oh my goodness, do we grieve it. We grieve it. And we wonder why this happened. Churches were, for the most part, behind educational and healthcare institutions on developing practices of safety, protection, and accountability. And then you add the fact that churches are places that cultivate close relationships. Then you add on the fact that church is the place where we want to give everybody a second chance and give everybody the benefit of the doubt. And bad actors manipulated all that. And I'm just going to use this phrase, churches became a soft target for people that wanted to hurt other people. And then when people started finding out about it, they said stupid stuff. And kids, I know I shouldn't use the word stupid, but I am for this because it is stupid. People said, oh man, this has happened. But we can't get, let it get out because that will ruin our reputation. So kids, teenagers, I want you to remember this for the rest of your life. If you're ever in a meeting where someone says, man, we can't let this get out, it will ruin our reputation. That is why you have to be honest about it and confess it. Because you know what's going to hurt your reputation? When you hide it, and then it eventually gets out. That's what hurts the reputation. That's what hurts the reputation. Now, once again, there are things that, I'm not saying every single thing that ever happens, but when people have been, people have been hurt and there needs to be a reckoning, you've got to be honest about it, because not being honest about it, I mean, that is what has hurt the reputation just as much as the abuse has been the cover. It's tragic. We can't do that type of thing. We must be people that are honest and transparent. The church must be transparent about her sins. Minimizing problems normally leads to the growth of problems. And when the problems get big, people get hurt, and then they walk away. That's what we're seeing all over the Christian church. The better way is confession and renewal. And that's what we're trying to do with our mission, right? Not that we've already attained this, but we press on. We're hopeful people. The world is a hard place. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we wake up every day trying to make the kingdom come. Before we close in song,
we're, we're going to talk about the power of the blood, and I feel like that's what we need to sing about after that. Let me offer this prayer. Let's pray together. Lord God, on Juneteenth, we confess the sins of this country. The sins historically against people of color, but then other sins that could take a long time. Forgive us, Lord. And yet also, help us to acknowledge that there has been good that you have done through this country. Help us to be people of hope and be responsible citizens of this country or any country we end up being a citizen on. Lord, help us to be responsible, hopeful citizens. Lord, on this Father's Day, we confess that our families are not perfect. We confess that we have sinned. Lord, help us to be responsible. Help us to seek repentance and reconciliation for the ways that we have sinned in our families. But Lord, may we be able to have relationships with our families. May we not give up on our families. Lord, we recognize that one of the main ways that we fight loneliness is, is the family. And one of the main ways we encourage each other is the family. So, Lord, let's not give up on it. And then lastly, Lord, forgive us as a church for our sins. And forgive us even more when we know about the sins and we hide it. We're not transparent about it. Lord, we grieve, we mourn, and we admit we're wrong. We're sorry. But, Lord, help us not to give up on your bride. Help us not to give up on the body that you died for. Help us not to give up on the group of people that is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Help us to know that the church is your institution. And if we believe in the scriptures, we know it's poised for a comeback. Lord, help us to not be people of cynicism, but people of hope. Help us not to be naive, but to be honest. And so in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing. Would you be free from the burden of sin?
three uh, paradigms for your community this morning. I want us to consider a painting. Um, as some of you probably know, I teach art and design. And when I'm teaching design principles to some of my students, I often show a picture of uh, Leonardo's uh, Last Supper. Um, probably seen this painting. It's one of the most widely recognized paintings in the history of Western art. It's a mural. It's about 29 feet wide. Uh, it's located in Italy. Um, you know, if you get a chance to go there, it's a really wonderful thing to see, but most of us don't get a chance to go there, but we see pictures of it, right? And it's this really wide picture. It's a table, really super long table. Christ is sitting at the center of it, and there's six people on one side of them, six people on the other side. And of course, it depicts um, the story of the Last Supper, and specifically, it's found in Matthew 26. It's the moment when Christ tells his apostles that one of them is going to betray him. So if you can kind of put yourself in that situation, um, psychologically, there's a lot of complexity going on. It's kind of like, you know, Christ just sat down, he's your teacher, and uh, he's this guy you look up to, and he's sitting at the middle of the table, and uh, of course, um, there's been a little bit of foreboding about something bad happening, and uh, you're, you're at a Passover meal, and Christ, uh, he says to you, you know, gentlemen, we're here at Passover, um, it's, We've been together a lot lately. Uh, we're really close now. We're like brothers. But I've got some bad news. Um, you see this knife right here on the table? Metaphorically speaking, one of you guys, can't tell you who, is going to pick this up and stab me in the back with it. And so, of course, at this moment, there's a lot of confusion. And that's what the painting is trying to tell us in a, in a big picture full of all this complexity. And so, on one side of the table, um, kind of going left to right, uh, one of the apostles, can't remember which one, he kind of like slams his hands down the table. He's upset. Um, one of the guys, there's a lot of gestures, right? A lot of hand gestures. Uh, one of the guys is like, whoa, 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 hold on. What did you just say? Um, Peter, if you look close at Peter, he's very animated. Um, he's like angry. He has like a mad dog kind of expression on his face. And he, if you look close, he's like holding a knife in his hand, kind of like, I can cut someone's ear off if you want me to. Just tell me to. Um, you keep moving over. Um, John, he's, he's like about to faint. He's sort of like this. Uh, if you keep going to um, Thomas, he's like, wait a second, how did you know this? And he's got his finger pointed up. Um, we got some more expressions going on. Um, Matthew, when you get all the way to the right, he's kind of like, did you hear what he just said? So, so anyway, we have all this, this animation going on. It's like a whole story. Paintings are like movies before movies happen, you know? And um, one thing I love about this picture, and the reason why I talk about it in class, is because from a design standpoint, um, the painter uses this really simple uh, method, a technique, a design strategy to tell this, this complex story in a very simple way. He uses a one-point perspective. And all that means is that um, all the lines of perspective here point to a single point in the picture. Some pictures you look at, um, the vanishing point is what's called an art scheme. There's not much going on at the vanishing point, but in this picture, um, we have the face of Christ. You, you follow all the lines of perspective, right, to the dead center of the picture, and everything points back at the face of Christ. And, and Christ is sort of holding his hands out. It's like a triangle. He makes this nice little triangle, and his cheek is turned. So it's kind of like we're, we're focused on this really solemn figure who's turned his other cheek. And so in the face of this betrayal, we have a figure at the center. He's the focus of the picture, who has turned his other cheek and is willing to kind of accept um, what, what's next, what's coming. <clears throat> One thing I love about our tradition 
is that we take a minute every week to gather in this table. It's a table where Christ is focused. He's at the center of the table. And um, I, I just love that, that, that image, that simplicity of, of coming together and having this moment to reflect. Um, the, the painting itself kind of asks us, it sort of begs the question, uh, like which, which apostle are you? You know, are you, are you Peter? Are you Andrew? Are you Matthew? Um, but one of the greatest things about the picture itself too is that the table is open. So we have the 12 guys behind Jesus, but the front of the table, once in a monastery, I guess, they're all eating. And everyone in the room looking at the painting is also at the table. And they are asking themselves, you know, if I'm at a table where Christ is at the center, am I one of these people? Maybe I'm my own person. I have my own story. And so let's think about that as we break bread together and, and ask ourselves, um, how are we putting Christ at the center of our lives? And uh, where are we in this story? Let's pray. Uh, dear Lord, thanks so much for bringing us here together on this special day. Um, we ask your blessing as we break this bread and we remember the sacrifice that your son made for all of us on the cross uh, when he went uh, to be crucified. It's in his name we pray.
you, Lord. While we're here gathered at the table, table for the earth of his and the center, uh, we thank you for this cup that represents the blood of Christ that shed on the cross to cover up all of our sins. We're so thankful and we're so humbled that we have a chance to participate in this uh, magnificent sacrifice. And we just pray uh, your grace this week.
even though summer has not actually arrived yet, it has its spirit. And so because of the heat on Wednesday nights, we are going to come inside for a little bit. Uh, the devotional will be here at uh, the building uh, until further notice. A link was sent out uh, for uh, registering for summer camp. If you have not seen that, let one of us know, and we'll be happy to reward it to you. It needs to be filled out by July the 10th. Um, JP mentioned Mission Week coming up here starting, I guess, next week, this morning. Um, notice a couple things in the bulletin uh, that you can be collecting supplies for. One, donations for the little pantry. Uh, number two, donations for making vaccine goodie bags. Um, there's a good list of stuff there uh, that you can uh, pick from. Um, be mindful of everybody we've been praying for. Um, good news, uh, you probably saw Stina's email, uh, or maybe saw Greg or Shelley on social media this week. Uh, Aussie got great news coming uh, out of his last PET scan. Um, he looks like he is 100% cancer-free, so we're thrilled for that. Um, lots of folks to be prayerful about. Church, is there, or are there any more announcements? Well, we thank you for being here this morning, and there are coffee and donuts downstairs. You've been listening to 900 Ackland Avenue, the podcast for the Ackland Avenue Church of Christ. If you'd like more information about our community, our church website is http colon slash slash org. Thanks again for joining us. God bless.